hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the You Are Not Too Busy podcast. I'm your host, Noam Raider, and I'm so, so happy that you're here. I took a little break from episodes for probably like a month now. I don't even want to check the exact date. Ignorance is bliss. Um, But I was traveling um, and also just really, really busy with residency for a little while there. So to get you guys up, I think last time we spoke was before I was leaving for my yoga retreat in Costa Rica. And that was now two and a half weeks ago, almost three weeks ago, which is so crazy how quickly time has flown. But it was absolutely amazing. Essentially, I started my OBGYN rotation. I did one week of the rotation. Super busy on OBGYN. I was honestly kind of drowning. Um, But thankfully, the second week of the block, I took off and I went to Costa Rica, which was absolutely amazing. I want to do a whole solo episode just talking about my experience on the retreat and how important I think it is for people to experience something like this. So that's coming really soon. Uh, But then I came right back and I landed at like 1 a.m. and I woke up the next day at 5.30 and went right back to my rotation. I did two more weeks of OBGYN to finish off the block. And then I went to LA this past weekend. So right after I finished my rotation, I went there just for like three days um, to visit my sister who's out there right now, as well as to do some social media stuff, which was really exciting and shoot some fun campaigns um, in the warmer weather and just with the appropriate, yeah, whatever. Anyways, um, life has been so hectic, but good. And I'm really grateful to be done my OBGYN rotation. Um, Life is about to be a lot more chill. Expect more podcast episodes, expect more content on social media. And yeah, I only have two more rotations left of my first year of residency, which is so crazy to me how quickly this first year has flown by. I literally have chills talking about it. It's so exciting, also very nerve-wracking, but mostly just exciting. Um, My next rotations are just family medicine blocks, so that's going to be really nice to be back doing what I kind of signed up for, what I want to do. And then second-year residency is still rotation-based, but we have a lot more flexibility and choice, so it should be a really good year, and I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah, the weather is finally getting nice out in Toronto, which is so amazing because I swear it's a completely different city when the leaves show up on the trees and the sun is shining and I was walking around today and people were dancing in the park and reading books on the benches and it was so magical and beautiful and I bought myself flowers spent way too much money buying flowers today not so proud of that but anyways um yeah life is good life is hectic but life is good Anyways, um, we are going to jump into today's guest episode because I'm going to go record a solo episode after this, so that'll come soon. But anyways, for now. All right, everybody. Welcome Tara Murphy to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on I feel like I really need today's conversation, and I'm sure a lot of people listening feel the same way as well. So let's just jump right into it. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, or as I like to say on the podcast, your elevator pitch? Who are you? What do you do? Et cetera. Uh, So my name is Tara Murphy, like you've already introduced me. I actually grew up in Windsor, Ontario. 
Um, and I moved to Toronto when I was 18 years old and the past three years pandemic hit and I've been bouncing between Mexico and Toronto, trying to balance and manage life that way. So that's been a really fun experience for me. Um, I went to school for finance. I always had an interest in money and kind of the concept behind why do people have it? Why do some people struggle? Like, What is the underlying factor? What do these people do for a living? Um, what is credit? Like why plastic can be exchanged for things used to confuse me as a kid. Like, okay, here's a card and I purchase. So I've always been interested in finance, but I went to school at Ryerson for finance. And now I dabble in the banking space. I work in investment bank at, in Toronto. When I'm home, I'm in office. When I'm not, I'm virtual like we all are. And I do coaching on the side, consulting. I have an Airbnb business. I have dabbled in some social media space as it comes by, but I wear a lot of hats and I just always hope that I can continue the conversation about money and freedom and finance open for more women and younger people. Absolutely. I mean, so many of those things you brought up obviously kind of sound like silly questions or maybe it's as a joke, but it's real things that I think a lot of people won't even admit themselves. They don't always have the answer to like not related to finance, but even like how does the TV work? Like a question that like we all just accept, but I feel like none of us actually really know unless we like sit down and look it up. So um, I'm really excited to kind of break down back to basics today about finance, but also about how people can start taking those next steps once they have that good foundation. So before we jump into all that, though, another question I like to ask everyone who comes on just to get to know a bit more about them and their personality do you know what, what your personality type is, like your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs or alternatively your Zodiac sign? Um, and is there any qualities within any of those that you feel like you relate to or describe you? So my Myers-Briggs, my boyfriend actually asked me to do it when we first started dating and it was like month one and I kind of thought it was weird. Like, Are you going to study me and research <laughs> me? Why are you asking me to do my Myers-Briggs? So he asked me to do it. That was in 2017. And I was INTJ, which I don't know if I identify with because I always thought I was an extroverted person, but the first letter is introvert. So mm -hmm. I would be curious to do it again now to see like five or six years later if I would answer things the same. But um, so I feel like I have changed a little bit outside of that or modified. And then mm -hmm. my Zodiac is Aries, which I think I, I'm pretty to a T what they would describe the Aries fire creature like. I don't identify with it, you know, in my day to day life. Like this is what an Aries would do. But I find that I'm pretty aligned with that astrological sign. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the personality type testing maybe has a bit more validity, but I think at the end of the day, it's all just kind of fun ways to try to understand yourself better. And I feel like sometimes when you read the descriptions, whether it's for your Zodiac sign or personality type, and you don't relate to it, I feel like that kind of also tells you a bit about yourself too. So that's always fun as well. But yeah, I've taken it like every couple years and it changes over time. So I feel like it is really interesting to see. Yeah. And I feel like I'm answering honestly. So if it comes out that it's introverted lifestyle or something is different with my answers, I am being honest and spitting mm -hmm. out, you know, I'm just getting more self-reflection, but 
I always thought that was interesting. And for my boyfriend to ask, and then he's like, what's your love language? And what's your best stuff? And so it's probably why we're still together is because we got to know each other very intimately through that kind of stuff in the beginning. Nobody had ever asked me like first date, what it was, let me read about you and, and like, tell me what makes you tick. So I think that it's really helpful always to reflect financially or otherwise. Like when I'm down here in Mexico, a lot of times the people I'm surrounded by down here are all people who think outside the box because they're living here. And most of my friends and people and community down here aren't born and raised in Mexico. So it's always interesting to meet people and see like, why are you here? What brought you here? Why are you different? Why did you kind of flee from home? So all that stuff's a reflective part of it. I'm all, I'm into all of it. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I'm the, I'm your boyfriend in the relationship. Like I was the one asking my boyfriend all of these questions, but yeah, I love that you got on board with it, but let's jump into all things money because I feel like we have so much to break down today and I just want to get right into it. So I guess my first kind of question, kind of speaking off what you said initially, were you someone who was always, I guess, quote unquote, good with money or just like money savvy? And if not, was there a turning point in your life where you realized this is something that I really want to take control of and want to have my own literacy and rather than just relying on other people? I think everybody is born with the same underlying, nobody's good with money. They don't put it in our curriculum. I have friends in the medical field like you and other people that are trained doctors deliver babies. And then they're like, Tara, I don't know what I should be doing with my debt, with my finances, with my, it's just not something that is integrated in our society where our parents talked about it, where our friends talked about it. It wasn't like a motivational topic back then. So it was hard for any of us to be quote unquote good with money because it wasn't something that most people now don't even understand. And there's so many resources out there that it's overwhelming, I think, to a lot of people and was for me at first. But because I always had an interest in, like I said, credit and why are people driving this and other people driving this? It doesn't mean that they're good or bad or I was young and I didn't really understand it. So I've kind of committed my early adulthood and most of my 20s to figuring out, okay, why are people wealthy? Where does it come from? How do we compound this? How do we make it work for us? We're all different. And if you it's kind of like eating or working out, you don't do the same thing for your body that your best friend might do. So finances are similar. And that's why when I'm with clients, I try and teach them that you are different than me than other people. And when coming up with money plans for yourself, financial plans, it's about you. And I really try and encourage people to have that control of you have the power to direct your money in whatever location you want it to go. Let's make a smart plan for you, not for anybody else. Yeah, I love that. I've never heard of someone kind of put in the analogy of um, like working out or eating certain ways. Um, Because I think, again, it's something you kind of intuitively understand, but I I think that's a really cool analogy. Um, and you mentioned that once you kind of started school and you did your degree in finance, you started to learn more about it. At what point was, I guess, the turning point from I'm learning all of this, let me actually apply it? Or what was your first investment or first big money move or whatever it might be? I think that I did things people would say wrong or backwards. I invested before I knew what I was doing. I was 18. I got OSAP and there was like a grant portion 
that they gave to you that I didn't need to pay for my school. And I was working through university. So I invested my OSAP. And at the time, I really didn't know, okay, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I went the safest route I could, because then at least I wouldn't lose it to pay it back. But I let it sit there for the four years while I didn't need it. And it gained interest. And I learned kind of in that time, okay, this is how it works. This is what to expect. So I didn't really do the steps first and then start to invest. I dabbled and I did some trial and error back then, I guess with government money that I paid back. And since then, it's always been a bit of a risk for me to do this stuff for myself. And now like 10, 12 years later, I do know what I'm doing and I I work things a little differently, but it was all about me trying it before I could teach it or before I could really understand. And that's kind of how it all snowballed for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I feel like it's a fine balance of don't kind of make any silly mistakes. But I also feel like if you wait until you know enough and until you're ready, you never really will. And I think not necessarily just in finance, but a big principle I try to think of throughout life is you don't just start and figure out the details later. But I never really thought of applying that to finance. I feel like I'm on the other end of I feel like I don't know anything, so I'm not going to do it because I don't know enough right now. So like maybe I'll start learning and then I'll do it next month. And then I never do because we never have enough time to start kind of learning new things and picking up hobbies because we're all always too busy. So I think that's an interesting kind of take on that. Obviously, you were young at the time. I don't know if you would recommend the same thing now, but maybe a hint of it of just kind of jumping in sometimes. Yeah, I would definitely not recommend that people just go out there and go with the gut. Investing isn't a let's go with the gut meme stop type of situation for real people that can work if you're day trading all day long. But for the everyday person, like you said, we're so busy. And the the biggest thing I would teach young people and students or someone like you who is just I don't have time for this. I don't I'm overwhelmed with my options. I would say, you know, start small where you can invest monthly and pick something that's suitable for you, maybe through your home bank where you have a monthly payment. Like we all pay for our cell phone. We pay for gym membership. We pay for gas. Like it's no big deal. Just comes out. We know this is part of my life. I have to pay for it. But then we don't pay ourselves and our future to invest. So even $50 a month, you know, there's a lot of people are like, Tara, I'm on a budget. I'm whatever. Okay. I see you go out. I see you live your life. It's fine if you don't want to do this. There's no judgment or shame or guilt involved in this at all. But to think about yourself and to like tap it like a debit card for everything else and then not for your future, to me, doesn't make sense. So I really try and help people with the numbers and something that's comfortable with them, not breaking the bank and getting people into kind of a groove of, hey, 50 bucks a month. It's not going to hurt you, but watch in five years, 10, 20, it's going to make a huge difference in your life. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like thinking about it like financial hygiene and just like the basics you have to do rather than thinking it has to be necessarily a luxury to invest. Obviously, there's privilege to having even that $50. But at the end of the day, even if it's $50, even if it's less, um, even if it's not every month, but kind of starting to make it more of a habit. I really love that perspective. Yeah, I think it's important for people to remember, like, definitely, it's not about how much you're making. There were people that have been making more than me my whole life. And I have two properties. I'm buying a third. Nobody helped me purchase them. I bought my own place at 24. Like I just, 
had a goal and I did it. And a lot of people said no. And a lot of people said I'm crazy. And banks were like, uh, no, you're 24 and you have student debt. So like hard no. But if you just be creative with what you can do. And again, you said we're privileged to have, you know, mortgages to begin with and Canada and healthcare and benefits. But when you start to be creative and you don't take shit from people when it comes to you can't do this and you shouldn't do this, then you really start to pave the way in life that you want to, you know, the pace that you want to take instead of somebody else. I always find it really interesting when people mention creativity in more analytical fields. I mean, I find the same in medicine or business or really kind of anything else. I feel like so much of our world is analytical, but I think what you mentioned is so important because I know at least firsthand for me in medicine, maintaining aspects of creativity and kind of problem solving and how you do things is so important. So I guess just a little side note, but I love how you incorporate that into your perspective of finance. Um, But I want to touch back on what you said earlier of that first investment you made, or maybe your first few, you said you invested into something that you felt was safe. So I don't know if you want to share exactly what it was or what made you decide that something was safe or not. And maybe if that's, if your perspective on that has changed today, or what would you say today would define a safe or not so safe investment? So back then I invested in bonds, which um, go through the home bank. I bank with TD Bank. So it's very easy in their easy web to go to investments and you can kind of browse through the options there. Would I have done that again? No, because I was 18 years old and young and I had all the time in the world to make much more money. And bonds are the safest play where most of them you get your principal back, which means you get the money you put in back. That worked for me because I thought, okay, four years, I'm not going to lose anything. But the reality was that I didn't really make that much on it. I made interest and I did the thing that I set out to do. But if I had known what I do now, I would do something that that matched my suitability when I was 18. The younger you are, the more risk you, you have to take. And that's not to say pick risky stocks or risky investments or pick meme stocks or something like that. Crypto, I'm, I'm talking about the stock market in general goes up over time. Historically speaking, that's how it's always been. So if you're younger, you have more time to ride out years like a pandemic and last year when people were talking recession. So if you're older, you don't have as much luxury in time to wait those years out. If that's your retirement year and it's 2020 and we saw that downward spike in the market, that's a horrible time for you. If you're 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 even years old, you have all the time in the world that that doesn't matter to you, that the markets are going to recover like they do. Same year, 2020, we went down 35%. We went back up 44% in the same year. So if people scared were scared back then and sold, like, ah, this is too much for me, they missed out on the rebound. So it's a cycle that continues over time. I'm like you where I love numbers and data and facts. So it's like medicine has science. And finance has numbers, but there's uh, an an emotional aspect to money that is so interesting because your psyche drives a lot of that decision-making when it comes to purchasing, spending, investing. So I think understanding and looking at things from more of an analytical perspective and leaving your emotions out, if you see that it's not going so well, just trust the process. Yeah, for sure. And I guess kind of on this topic, I know you mentioned bonds and I know there's lots of different words like stocks and bonds, tax-free savings account, all of that. 
can you give us like a little rundown of what is our financial, I guess, vocabulary? What are the terms that we should be familiar with or just a refresher for anyone listening? Yeah, so there are different types of investments out there. There are bonds, which are typically the safest options. Bonds and treasury bills, but you're not going to hear about that. That's what our grandparents are probably invested in. They are the safest option where they don't return you so much, but they return something typically like two, three, four percent a year. That means return on your original investment. Then we have mutual funds and ETFs, which are baskets of different stocks within them. So if you're inv- interested in the healthcare sector, you can invest in a healthcare mutual fund and the manager of that fund will pick a bunch of different healthcare companies and kind of create that basket for you. Or if you're interested in the whole market and there's 11 sectors in the stock market and you want to kind of dabble in all of them, you can invest in an index fund, which is basically a sample size of the biggest companies in all of those sectors. So you're kind of dabbling into all of them. So those are baskets of funds, which are the most suitable for most people at any age, because there's not that much risk when there's a lot of companies. And when somebody's managing it for you, you can do that through your home bank. And then of course, there's stocks where you're buying a part of a company via a share. So mutual funds are cool, the middle ground, because you can just put a dollar amount in them. Whereas if you're buying a stock, you have to actually purchase one share of a stock. And if it was Tesla a few years ago, it's like $1,000, not anymore. But some people don't have the money to invest in individual stocks. But if you have a small amount of money to start with, you can invest in a mutual fund, a dollar amount, and then it just goes into the pool of funds with everybody else investing. That's really helpful. Yeah. And I feel like there's two kind of perspectives I hear often. So one is if you don't know too much about investing, go into the safe route. So mutual funds, um, if you don't do too much research on it, just kind of go with um, the, I guess, most like logical safe option of doing that. And then I hear another narrative of people saying, especially if you're in your 20s and you kind of know what I guess is, in other words, cool and trending, like invest in things that you're interested in, things that you see potential in, even if it's smaller smaller companies or startups or not necessarily in one stock rather than mutual fund. But I wonder if you have a perspective on kind of those two views on things for someone wanting to start investing in their 20s. Yeah, so the, that's actually so funny you describe it like that because there's something in the finance world we call value and then there's something we call growth. And growth stocks are those startups and your Airbnbs and your DoorDashes and your Ubers and your Teslas that are new in the last decade or year or what have you. And they focus on growth and idea generation and research and development. And then there are value stocks, which is the other side where it's like Microsoft and Google and Costco and, you know, Ford or GM instead of a Tesla where they know what they're doing. They keep pumping out the same product. It's like Johnson and Johnson, their their toilet paper. They don't really have to research or develop too much. It's toilet paper. So those are value-based stocks and there are strategies for both. But the, the thing I love about the mutual funds for young people is that you can have companies in that growth side and that value side, and they marry them together in those funds for you. So I think just making sure you're investing an amount you're comfortable with and not really going out on a limb to start is the best case scenario. That being said, my first like five stocks I ever bought, and I teach this in my program and to my students, are companies I believe in and that I know will be around. I bought Nike, uh, Air Canada, I travel a lot, 
Starbucks, and I think there was another, maybe Johnson and Johnson toilet paper that I bought as my first few stocks because I was like, okay, I see a Starbucks on every corner in the world. Do I think this company is going to crumble and fold? No. So that's probably a good place. I fly Air Canada all the time. Are they going to go under? Probably not. You still want to be aligned with where you're investing or what you're doing with your money, even if it comes down to a purchasing choice. If you're not aligned with buying that, don't put your money there. So I feel the same is true with investments, but I don't want it to get so granular that people get overwhelmed and are scared that, oh, I'm not aligned with any of it, that they shouldn't be investing. Okay, so it's kind of a little bit of both, having those safe options, but also, I guess, making it enjoyable for yourself to a degree. So kind of knowing what you're investing in and having some stake in it as well. And knowing what you're investing in is so important. There's a lot of those robo-advisor, like a Wealth Simple or those that are great to get people kind of interested in investing, but they don't give that much clarity or autonomy over what you can invest in. So for example, I have clients come to me and they're like, Tara, 2021, the market's made 28%. I only made 2% at Wealth Simple. And I said, okay, well, what do you own there? Like, where, what are you investing in? And she didn't know because she did a survey online and they just put her in an automated fund and then took the money every month. But she had no idea where she was investing. And that kind of stuff to me is a red flag. Again, I relate it to your body. Like you don't close your eyes and eat food and hope that it's going to be good for you, you know, because somebody said it is. I might be celiac and somebody put pasta down. So not knowing what you're investing in or where your money is going to me doesn't vibe and doesn't feel aligned. So most importantly, you don't have to know exactly what is in that mutual fund that you're purchasing, but you should know enough about, are we investing in the US and Canada? Is it investing in like Russia during a Russia-Ukraine war? Like where is my money going? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like maybe there's something that is super intuitive to you or other people who are big into investing. And I'm just starting to kind of dabble in that world. But for a really broken down, explain it to me like I'm five sort of perspective. If someone is listening to this podcast says, okay, I think I want to go invest in a mutual fund or go purchase my first stock. Um, what is the step-by-step way to do that? Do you call the bank? Is there a website you go to? How does it literally work? Because I feel like that in itself is a huge barrier for people. Yes. So the cool thing is that most of the major banks in Canada and the US, but a lot of my clients that I work with one-to-one are Canada. So I bank with TD and I am very familiar with the back end and I share that with my students. But now because I've had students that are with Tangerine, Scotia, RBC, BMO, I kind of know a little bit more what the back ends look like. And I'm comfortable enough to say going through these with my clients that there are options for everybody at every bank. So how it would work if you were young and you're like, okay, I, I want to get into this somehow. I would first work out some sort of budget where it doesn't have to be detailed or stressful. It can just be, what do I make approximately? And if it's different every month, okay, let's do like a good scenario and a tighter scenario. What do I spend approximately a month? What's that number left over? When you find that number left over, then you're like, okay, what do I have to play with? I never want to allocate that whole number to investment savings, or I always like to make room for me because maybe I get invited to a wedding or maybe I, so I never like to allocate that number 100%, but I always advise people with that number, what of that number are you comfortable investing that you don't need in the short term? You don't need to worry about if that number changes up or down 10, 15%, it won't bother you. 
This is the number you're comfortable with putting aside in case it disappears. Not to say a mutual fund will, it's very unlikely that it would ever disappear in that world. But that's first step is coming up with what do you have at the end of the month left over? How much right now are you willing or okay, able to invest? That number can change as well. So when young people are like, I can't do it now. Okay, maybe now you can do $25 a month. Maybe in 10 years, you can do $400 a month. That number can change and the bank can automate that for you. So step one, figure out your budget and what the number is. Step two, go inside of your bank and there's investment sections. Make sure you're investing every Canadian through your tax-free savings account, TFSA. It's called a tax-free savings account, but it's meant for investing. It's not just meant for savings. And the reason being is because if you invest through that account, you don't pay tax on the gains. It's tax-free. So yeah, cool. It's awesome to save in your tax-free savings account, but you invest through it. If you turn 60000 into one hundred and twenty over the next five, six years, you don't pay tax on that. That's now your $120,000. So side note, when you're opening an investing account, always, unless you've maxed it out, do tax-free savings account. So step one, budget, find your allocation. Step two, open a tax-free saving investing account. Step three, go and look at your investment options through your bank. Any of the major banks, even Tangerine is a small bank, has options there. And each one of them goes through. This is lower risk. This is medium. This is higher risk. These are the companies you'd be investing in if you pick this one. These are the companies you'd be investing in if you pick this one. I work with people on finding these if you're not sure, but th those would be the steps. Determining the amount, open your account, pick your investment, and then you invest one time and your bank can automate it for you. So if you want to do $100 a month every two weeks, you can do $50, comes right out of your debit account into your investing, and then you never have to pay attention. And I'm telling you, it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars over 20, 25, 30 years, starting with like 100, 200, $300, hundreds of thousands. Most people that I work with when they're doing their calculator, I have this calculator exercise I do with them to help. And I should link it in my bio so that people can find it. But it helps you put in, okay, if I do 150 a month at this rate, okay, what will it be in 20 years? You can toggle it 25, 30. And you, you're seeing million, two million, three million dollars easily because you have time for your snowball to collect when you're not even putting that much in a month. So I always urge like the younger you are, the better, but you're never too old to get started. That was a lot. No, that was very helpful. I'm sitting here like making mental checklists like, okay, okay, okay. No, I love that. And kind of on what you're saying of, I know you mentioned you have clients and um, your calculators and all of that. When does someone think to themselves, okay, I've kind of started dabbling this in this myself, but maybe I should get advice from someone like you, a financial advisor, et cetera. Um, is it a certain like money amount that you want to be investing that tells you, you should get someone's opinion or certain life factors? Do you have any take on that on when the right time is for that? Yeah. Advisors, the finance world is funny because I work in this world and there's some advisors and people out there who say you have to have a minimum and they take the money and they do it for you. But that's why I try and work with people one-on-one -on -one and put content and stuff online because they're not teaching you what to do. They're just telling you, trust me, I know how to do it. And 
of course, it's like same in your field, medical, trust your doctor, they know what they're doing. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any insight in the pill that you're taking, right? So it's kind of this hand in hand, find somebody that you're comfortable with every bank has advisors that are free, like if you bank with a TD or a tangerine or whoever, they're free to talk to. Sometimes it might not be a good fit. The first time I know some clients go in and it's like, oh, I got a 65 year old man who is telling me to invest like he is, but he's 65 and I'm 25. So I just think do some research in your home bank is as a good start because that's like the less, the least threatening place to, to be. Find somebody that feels a good vibe and that you trust and then make sure that when you're talking to an advisor or somebody, you know the motive. If it's not at your home bank or it's somebody saying like, hey, invest with me. If anything is too pitchy or salesy, same like everything, you steer clear. This is your money. It's not a joke. So I think home bank is the safest way. If you find somebody, even people DM me all the time, little questions, and I am always happy to answer the questions, even if it's, hey, looking at this, you know, what do you think? Because I'm trying to help people help themselves versus like, give me your money, I'm going to do it for you. So short answer is I think your home bank is the best place to get started because there's advisors there to, that don't have like underlying commissions or external factors that they're going to advise you based on or find somebody that you trust. You really can't go wrong. I show my students this too. And it's in my program. There's the sectors uh, document and it's a link with Fidelity, which is irrelevant, but it's a link that I'm happy to share. I can just add it so you can put it in the notes if you want, but it shows you all the sectors in the stock market and how they perform for people who are interested. This might be overwhelming and some people might not care, you know, about every sector, but I like to look into it. And it shows you on that chart that the three-year, five-year, and 10-year sections in each sector of the stock market, so no matter where you're investing at all, every one of them is positive. 10-year, most of them are like at least double, some of them three or four times your money. So that tells me and teaches my students, no matter what you're picking, as long as it isn't like one of those trendy memes that you know is very volatile, you have to be following, whatever sector you're picking, all of them, 11 out of 11 of them in three, five, and 10 years are positive. All of them, with all of them at least doubling in the 10-year mark, some of them four times. So it shows you like you can't really do it wrong. If you're going to the bank and you're picking one, are you maximizing your return? You could do a little better probably if you paid more attention, but do you want to? Why? You don't have to. We all have different strengths and mine is finance and so is the managers at these banks. So I think it really helps people to understand that every sector, if you have time to wait, returns. And that's just history. That's not me saying that. That's historically speaking. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, one, of course, to start with what's free and what you know kind of doesn't have those ulterior motives, but also finding someone who has, I guess, similar views as you, similar goals or perspectives. Um, I feel like we've all definitely been there where we're working with an accountant or a financial advisor or really anything else. And it's a man who's 20, 30, 40 years older than us. And I feel like sometimes it's, we're not speaking the same language. Like I, even if I understand the words he's saying, and I like thinking of myself as a pretty educated person, but like, I just, nothing makes sense when he explains it to me. But then I talk to someone like you or um, someone, whether it's a man or a woman, someone maybe closer to my age and suddenly it all makes sense. So I think 
kind of stepping away from maybe those stereotypes of who is a good financial advisor for you doesn't have to be kind of a older white male necessarily. I feel like that's an important stigma to break. Yeah. And I said that because I work on Bay Street and it's like, uh, it's older white male. That's not me discriminating or stereotyping. That's just my experience. And I know that's a huge reason why women, especially younger women, don't go and go to the bank because they could walk in, they see the panel of people that they can talk to. They don't want to, they're not comfortable. And being comfortable when it comes to your finances is number one. So I always say like, you know, do what you need to feel safe in a safe space to talk about finances. There should be no guilt, shame. We all judge ourselves way too much. And I bring it back to food. If you go to a restaurant with a friend and she orders something different than you, you're not going to judge her and be like, oh, you can't eat that. That's horrible. It's the same with your financial decisions. If your fund is a little bit different than your friends or you're investing through TD and someone's in BMO, it doesn't mean that you can't talk about it and encourage each other and that you're doing something wrong. It's more so that as long as you're comfortable in the situation, that's what it should, that's what it should be about investing, budgeting, spending, all of it should be returning to that place of you're in control. And I think that's why I grew into loving money from a perspective, not tangible, like not for material things, but to feel in control of my life. Yes, I can go to Mexico if I want. Yes, I can work remotely if I want. Because I have an understanding of what is happening with my financial situation and I know how to be creative and I can learn to use investments for long term, I don't have to worry today because I know 10, 20, 30 years, I'm going to be fine. And that's not even me paying attention every day. That's just because I set up these basic auto investments. So I think it's really important for people to remember this is in your control and it's your power and you should kind of own that a little bit more. What you mentioned kind of also reminds me of what you said at the beginning of when you were trying to buy your first property at 24 and no one really took you seriously. I feel like that's another thing that a lot of young women kind of run into. If you do have the money to start investing, you are starting to see success, whether it's through your investments or through your career otherwise, and then you're not taken seriously either because the people you're mainly talking to, and again, it's it's a stereotype, but unfortunately it's still true if you just look at the numbers of um, the statistics of people who are working in finance you're meeting with a bunch of men who are decades older than you and they just look down upon you. So I think it's also great to kind of find people in your corner who not only, like we said, speak the same language as you and can help you make a decision with your money, but also actually believe in you and kind of have that faith back in you. I feel like that's so important and feeling safe, like you said. Yeah, I think in your field, for sure, medicine, If you, in my field, I walk in and I look young And I have looked young and thank God I still in my 30s, I'm still looking young, but it doesn't serve me in a lot of ways at work. And this is also something that I would love to change, but I'm trying to just look at it in a positive way. Like, hey, I'm young, but people do not take you seriously when you look young and you are female and you stick out. I'm sure you find that in the medical space. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that a lot of other corporate women, you know, I get assumed that I'm the secretary or assistant or this or that. I've been at the investment bank for almost seven years. There are men that come in that work under me that call me and ask me for their advice. But I can tell you they're being paid more, very likely. My situation's different now that I don't live there. But there's just always an underlying something in these spaces when we look young and we 
So I try and talk and speak even to you and on these podcasts as much as I can. So women start to feel more confident in owning these choices and being empowered to make those decisions without the approval of like a male counterpart saying like, yep, I sign off on that. That's great. Yeah, for sure. And sidestepping a little bit just from kind of the traditional talk around investments, I know you mentioned that you're working remotely now in Mexico, which sounds amazing. And I feel like is everyone's kind of dream these days. And also investment properties and Airbnbs. So I guess kind of your general take on diversifying your streams of income or other than just investing into stocks, mutual funds, et cetera, what are other ways that people can start gaining financial freedom? So I love this question because as I have gotten older, it hasn't just been like, oh, I was 18, I bought a bond, like really cool. I did dabble in the real estate space and I love owning property and I love having Airbnbs where it pays you next day. Somebody comes and you get paid. Whereas my properties that I own, those are like savings accounts. Those are just sitting there appreciating. I'm getting rental income, but these days, sometimes it's not even break even. So those are like my long-term delayed grat financial figures, whereas Airbnbs are more, you know, next day and passive income streams are amazing. I think that again, alignment is so important because making sure you're aligned with, again, where your money is going is great and always the best thing to do, but making sure that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, like you said, diversifying is also something that you should think about as you get older. That's why I love talking to people about rental properties or how can we monetize your passion on the side or what can we do to increase the income? Even things like asking for a raise. It shocks me when I talk to people sometimes that it's been three, four, five years and they're afraid to ask, but inflation on the on the backside, you know, like eggs are not egging the same as they used to. Money is not doing the same as it used to. So I think always being creative and maximizing what you can with your situation is the best way to diversify those several income streams. I love that. And I guess similar to the question we had before, it might be kind of broad, but is there a first step you would say to take if someone's looking to kind of find a passive stream of income or a few suggestions of where they can start looking? Yeah, I think these days it's so funny because money is everywhere and there's a digital space now where it's like people can pull money out of the sky and the influencer space. It's like brands have budgets and people have following. So they monetize that in some way. Or it's like if you love cooking and you put it on YouTube, it's like, oh, the ads can monetize it some way. So I see money everywhere in this world now, whereas so many people think it's hard to earn money and they don't see money everywhere. Maybe this is an illness that I have, that everything in my eyes, it looks like money. But it really comes down to what makes you happy? What would you do for free? When I have clients that feel stuck in their job and their career, I'm always asking them, hey, fill out the survey. Question number one is what would you do for free? And if it's not what you're doing right now and you don't have a passion and a love for it, let's come up with a plan to somehow monetize what you would already do for free and what you love. And I think that's really important because financial freedom comes with you're earning money from a place that feels good. And if you're earning money from a place that doesn't feel good, it won't feel like freedom to you. Even if you're making lots of money, it won't feel free to you. So there is, again, that balance between 
Do I enjoy what I'm doing? Am I being paid what I'm worth? Let's marry those to make sure that we're being looked after. I never heard of someone kind of refer to financial freedom as kind of that, the joy part of freedom. So I love that. That's a really great perspective to take. Um, and my last kind of he- heading or subject for finance that I wanted to discuss um, that I feel like is kind of the less glamorous or less sexy part of finance, but things budgeting and savings and all of that. So I, I feel like for me, it's always a fine balance of making smart money decisions and not being reckless, but also knowing that I want to enjoy my life. And um, there's the perspective, oh, the one Starbucks a day could be your house in the future. And other people say, oh, well, that one Starbucks a day, if it makes you happy, just go for it. So I guess kind of what's your two cents on budgeting? And do you have any kind of take home advice for anyone wanting to be a bit more conscious of their spending? Yeah, so I love the coffee analogy because I see both sides and I always see it come on TikTok and they're like bashing the old school people for being like, don't go to Starbucks. That They're like, okay, do what you want, lady. And then the old school people are like, but that can really turn into so much more money. And I see both sides and I run between that um, woo-woo side of money, the spiritual abundance stuff, as well as the numbers because I work in finance. So I kind of tiptoe on both sides and stay balanced, but Um, overall, I just feel like when you are budgeting and when you are saving and everything in life to me and with your finances should be purposeful. So if you're going to Starbucks every day because you need an escape from work and that escape gives you happiness and freedom and you can go back to work and show up better and think more clear, then that's a purposeful $7 you're spending. If you're going there just to sit by and pass time and you don't even like the coffee and whatever, It's not as aligned and purposeful for you. So I think even people who have like 20 bank accounts, sometimes they're like, Tara, I'm overwhelmed. I have all these money and all these weird places and I don't know what it's doing. Okay, let's go through it and talk about the purpose of each of these accounts. This one is saving for a home. This one is debt repayment. This one is for fun this summer. I think being purposeful with your financial choices now for your present you and for future you is important. Being aligned is important. And I also feel like giving yourself a break is important. Like judgment has no space in your life for financial decisions. You weren't taught this. It's like all of a sudden someone would expect you to know when nobody taught you. So every woman or person that's hard on themselves because they don't know what they're doing financially or feel some sort of way guilty or no one taught you better. So start to have more conversations with yourself about what are my goals? Is this aligned with me? Is there a purpose for for me spending or saving or whatever this amount? And I think the rest of it kind of flows naturally into what are you willing to spend on and what are you saving for? Yeah, I I love that. That I feel like really clarified that kind of lifelong debate that we're all seeing around this cup of coffee, which I don't know why we're so, everyone's so worried about Starbucks versus all the other things we spend our money on. But that idea of purpose really resonates for sure. And kind of on the topic of budget, I know on your social media, you talk a lot about travel hacks and how to save money while traveling. And I think that a lot of people listening, people in their 20s, hoping to gain financial freedom, part of that is to travel and have time to try new things and enjoy their lives. So I guess, do you have any like top travel hacks or travel tips that you think people are kind of missing out on when booking vacations or traveling, et cetera? 
Yeah, that's funny you asked me that now. So I have recently, like I said, that I dabble in all these spaces. Because I'm back and forth all the time traveling, I have a partnership with redtag.ca, which we could have a whole nother episode about that space that you are probably way more familiar than me. But I have been posting a lot of travel hacks because I noticed that travel is perceived as luxurious. It's perceived as it has to be expensive. Where most of us come from a place like Toronto, that's luxurious and expensive versus a lot of the world. And I think a lot of people forget that. I think a lot of people forget that living in a place like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal or New York, that's expensive. So going somewhere else, okay, the plane ticket, but cost of living in a lot of different places is much lower than people think. And in fact, the longer that you can be there, the cheaper it becomes because you can negotiate. So Google Flights is like my my dream when it comes to flights. There was flights back to Canada. I'm going back to Canada soon. And they were $1,000 one way per person. That's a robbery and theft as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not paying that. I'll stay here another month rather than pay my boyfriend and I $2,000 to fly three hours. So I tracked Google Flights every day. I would just check it, check it. I saw a flight um, coming up that was $290 Canadian one way with WestJet. One morning, it just popped up, bought them, both of them for less than $600 instead of paying $2,000. So Google Flights is like a go-to Bible for me because I've gotten so many of those little deals. You can set up alerts. Um, redtag.ca is my travel partner, but they also have something called low price calendar, lowest price calendar, where if you're like, I want to go on an all-inclusive vacation, I don't want to pay too much. You can click, click the month that you're traveling and put like sunny destination, five star, and it will give you options for the cheapest destinations. So that's cool. I have some promo codes for them in my bio if people are interested, but there's always ways to get around you know, traveling to make it more affordable for people. And just like I said, when you prioritize travel in your life, you'll automatically start to see that, okay, you're spending less on other areas because you're putting more money and energy towards travel. So I think whatever your advice is, travel or not, you can always find some ways to purposefully spend in that direction and save yourself a little bit of money. Yeah, that's very helpful. Definitely check that out. And to kind of start wrapping it all up, is there any piece of financial advice that you didn't get to mention that you wish you knew when you were younger? Yeah, I think most importantly, be be comfortable talking to yourself about your financial situation. A lot of people are like, ah, I don't want to look like ah, I have spent way too much. And that does inherently bring guilt and shame and judgment towards yourself. And then it runs into every part of your life. If you can't sleep at night because you're in debt or you can't feed your family or you don't have money to do this and all your friends are doing it, no matter what it may be, you know, having those negative feelings is horrible and eats away at you. It's no way to live. So first step is just being comfortable enough with yourself to understand what your situation is, living within that means. And then when you're ready to set up your investments, set them up, stay patient, And my best advice is to stick to your plan because if you panic sell or you overthink it or you check and you're stressing, trust the process. It's going to work out for you like it has for every other person who ignores their investments if it was suitable for you. So I think overall, that's that's the best advice that I could give. 
And for anyone wanting to learn more about finance and investing, do you have any recommendations for any books or podcasts or other resources that you direct people to? Yeah, so I love the book Smart Woman Finish Rich. It's been iterated a few times now over time, but I forget who who writes it, but it's called Smart Woman Finish Rich. It goes through a lot of basic principles that aren't, you know, arguing about coffee. It's just starting to break things down for you. The, the investing for dummies books were always great for me when I wanted to really get into the process of investing. And then I kind of pulled from my favorite resources. I have a free resource guide in my bio. It's just the TMM resource guide. It has like a five minute budget you can do, how to calculate your net worth, how to ask um, credit companies for things. It gives you like lots of real advice. I think it's 12, 15, 20 pages now It's getting up there. But it has a lot of resources from my favorite learnings in there. It's free. You can download it. And it's in my in my bio. Awesome. I'll definitely be checking that out. And it's so always like so great and helpful to find free resources. So I'm sure everyone listening really appreciates that as well. Um, but if people want to learn more about you in general, or want to reach out, where can they find you plug yourself out? etc. So my name is Tara Murphy, Tara Marie Murphy. And that's what my social media and my website is. So it's my name. So pretty easy, taramariemurphy.com or on Instagram. And I'm always trying to share my life, what I'm doing, whether I'm at an Airbnb, and I'm having to set it up, I try and really make everything very transparent. I do have coaching available, although it's not, you know, my main gig. So there's no pressure for me to sit here and pitch working with me. If it's something you think is a good fit, amazing. If not also amazing, if I could have just said one thing that sparked something in somebody, I feel like it's worth it to, to have these conversations. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know that I learned a lot, so I'm sure everyone listening did as well. And I feel like I'm ready to take that next step. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I hope you learned something as always, and I hope you're having an amazing day and an amazing week. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, feel free to leave a rating, a review, follow the podcast on Instagram at you are not too busy pod, follow me at Noam Radar on Instagram or TikTok, and I will see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Mm-hmm.